Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. Joining me as my guest for this episode is author Patrick Harper. Patrick has written extensively on a range of 14 subjects, but is perhaps best known for his 1994 book, Diamonic Reality, A Field Guide to the Other World. This applied the ideas of people such as William Blake, W.B. Yeats and Carl Jung to examine the connections across a wide range of paranormal phenomena and explore the history of the realm many believe exists between the states of body and spirit. The book is regarded as a classic of its kind and a must-have for the bookshelves of people interested in the sort of subjects it covers. In the interview, I begin by talking with Patrick about the concept of daimonic reality and what that term describes. From there, we discuss the book and how it came about, and then move on to the daimons themselves, what they are, their interactions with humanity, and how and why they manifest in our world the way that they do. Daimonic Reality is one of my favourite books here at Sphere HQ, and I felt very fortunate to be able to talk with Patrick about it. Enjoy! Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here, Rick. I appreciate that Daemonic Reality is a subject that you wrote an entire book about, but can we, we begin by just sort of breaking down the core idea? Um, yes, certainly. Um, there's been lots of other names for it. Um, you, C.G. Jung called it psychic reality. You can think of it as imagination in the romantic sense. You can think of it as the soul of the world, as described by the Neoplatonists in particular. Um, you can call it the great mystery, as Paracelsus did. Um, you can call it simply the other world, as which is perhaps my favourite model, which is what the folklorists call it. Uh, but the idea is, is that it's a, a kind of intermediate realm between us and the spiritual realm. Um, it's a kind of twilight in-between world, in-between worlds, in which, um, it, which is really where the daimons live. Um, it, it's even said that the daimons invented this world, which is a rather marvellous, a rather marvellous metaphor for the way in which, um, you know, imagination creates itself out of nothing, as it were. It creates images of itself. Um, the daimons that I describe in daimonic reality are, are of course, the, 
not not the great visions of the gods or of Plato's eternal forms in the world of Noose or Naus, but those strange, um, you know, strange puzzling entities, which all cultures seem to have seem to have believed in, um, and which are strangely ignored or neglected today by us. I could give you a description of of their general characteristics. I'm talking about the strange entities that are recognised in in Europe as the elves, or or the ones that are especially close to me, being Irish, as the fairies. Um, but they exist in the Arab world as jinns, in in China as the Kwe Shins. Um, they exist in the in the north as Hulda folk. Um, the Cherokees call them the, what do they call them? The Yunwa Tsunzi. Um, in Ghana, they're called something like the Akumanu, Amunakopai, and so on. And they all have remarkable conformity of, of attributes. And that they are especially, I would say, ambiguous, contradictory, even paradoxical. Their worst contradiction from our point of view is that they appear to be both material and and immaterial, which is extremely troubling to us uh, because we, you know, our predominant materialism doesn't allow us to uh, to conceive of such a thing. Um, but nevertheless, that's what they do. Um, their second characteristic is. Uh, well, let's put it another way. They, one of their ambiguities is they can be both um, malign, malevolent, and benign. This is something that. This is something which which is also puzzling because Christianity, of course, got hold of the daimons. They had to account for them somehow, and they uh, divided them up into angels and devils. So they divided up this fundamental ambiguity of the diamonds into uh, good and evil as it were um, but in their own nature they're not they're just paradoxical and that's why they're also sort of sublime in the sense that they can bring you treasure enlightenment the highest enlightenment even but at the same time ridiculous you know because they're little and they appear in funny, strange little forms. You know, in the in the Arctic Circle, the hour of the Inuit are like little little women with hair down to their ankles, and their feet are turned upwards, so they appear to be walking on their heels. You know, and in West Africa, they're sort of either white or red or black. They're like monkeys. You know, um, so that's one of their most puzzling uh, characteristics. Secondly, they're, they're always marginal. Um, they, always, uh, they always appear on they, at thresholds, at liminal zones, as the anthropologists call it. You know? And that means that even in the landscape, they tend to appear at, at the threshold places like bridges or crossroads, even staircases. You know? And they appear at liminal times, like Midsummer's Eve. That's a great time for the fairies. Or at Halloween, which is another hinge of the year in the old old in the old calendar, and so on. But of course, they're also always marginalised by official culture, whether it's the churches or 
science or whatever official institutions are. So they're really difficult to get a, a handle on them. They're always too highly elusive, always fast moving. You know, they appear and disappear in the twinkling of an eye. And um, fourthly, I would say that they are one of their chief characteristics is that they're always shapeshifters. You know, they're impossible to pin down, really. And that's that's a, that's one of their attributes, which is kind of especially resonant, because it it points to the way that they cut their cloth to suit their suit the times, that they don't don't just shapeshift in themselves, as it were, they shapeshift across time. So just when we think that they've disappeared, that we've somehow banished them into the realm of hopeless superstition, you know, they pop up in a in a different guise. And, um, for example, I mean, I would see UFO mythology as continuous with fairy mythology. It's just that they no longer appear from below, from within, as it were. They appear from on high. They, because they've been banished from this world, they appear as if from another world and so on. And the supernatural power of the fairies is literalized and translated into some kind of advanced technology but you can see that they're sort of inverted versions of each other this is something that myths do they 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 present themselves in inverted and symmetrical versions of each other so right so if we want yeah yeah, sorry go on no i was um what i was going to ask is when you were writing the book when you started writing the daimonic reality book did you intend to write about the other world in general and and then came upon the the diamonds and and what they are or did or was it about writing about the diamonds and then sort of expanding upon what they are and how they exist yes um yeah no i i think it was i think i started from from the diamonds that's to say i got very interested in ufos and uh, when I was beginning to think about writing that book, you know, alien abductions were all the rage in America, especially. And I just thought to myself, what is this? You know, what's going on? You know, can, can you... Um... Obviously, that, that experience, the experience of seeing UFOs, which I was familiar with from an early age, you know, I, I understood that people saw these things, but the alien abduction phenomenon sort of put us put a, an even more kind of weird twist on the whole thing and I thought well I took it for granted somehow this was a real experience um but I didn't know what kind of reality that experience had you know it was it seemed to challenge my very notion of of reality and so you know from reading a lot of UFO books I I began to see that they were connected to the folklore I was already familiar with that is to say fairy lore from from Ireland and I had been doing some anthropology and I had already noticed that fairy-like creatures were common in, were common to pretty much every culture and yet strangely ignored. You know, anthropologists used to call them spirits, but spirit isn't at all a good word to describe these creatures since they so often appear in a very material way. Um, and I suppose I drew on the fact that 
but, but you know i did have a kind of inkling of a model for where these creatures came from and that was thanks to my literary training the model of the romantic imagination which is the opposite of the kind of imagination we have today which which treats imagination as if it were just a kind of faculty for picturing things that aren't present to the senses um, the romantic imagination of course really is another world it's an autonomous realm quite separate from us with its own laws and its own denizens these diamonds um, and and also its own motifs and stories which we call myths another word another casualty of the modern age of course a myth is now something that's untrue whereas i would say according to the romantic notion that they are in fact the true stories the true stories of the soul as it were so i kind of went i i kind of got interested in i i thought this has, hasn't been done before to try and fit these pieces together you know and uh, and i chose the name daimones because i was aware of them dimly from greek culture and i thought well a fairy would be a good name for all these creatures you know because the word fairy is is quite a sort of portfolio word um but i thought i'd lend an air of bogus or you know authority to the whole enterprise by invoking the greeks and calling them daimones does that answer your question yeah absolutely um what is it that you do you think that makes these entities want to change uh, what is it about sort of the human world the 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 physical realm whatever is the best term for it that sort of influences them um i'm not i'm not sure that they are influenced by our world um right well no that's not true because in, in all traditions you know we have traffic with these beings and they seem to like it or need it um you know wb yeats the great irish poet who who was a very daimonic man he said that the the fairies envy us our robustness while we envy them their wisdom you know that and and there are stories of fairies meeting priests on country roads and the fairy says to the priest can our race ever be saved um, I think this is slightly church propaganda, and the priest says, "No, I'm afraid not. You know, you can't. Salvation is not available to you." Um, but there is recipro reciprocal relations. You know, the, the, all the diamonds need to be fed. For instance, um, you leave out butter and milk in Ireland, but you leave out rum in West Africa. You know, and you leave out maize in in if you're a Plains Indian um and really that feeding is is a metaphor for heeding you know that, that you have to pay attention to the diamonds that's the idea i think otherwise you know they'll play havoc with your life um you know they're they're mischievous they can be mischievous and unruly if we don't strike up some sort of accord with them and of course folklore and myth is full of marriages between the diamonds and humans um, marriage is another metaphor for the reciprocal relationship we we should have with them so you know we we ignore them or neglect them at our peril you know because they are 
you can regard them as powerful psychological forces, if you like. Jung called the psychological complexes buried in the unconscious, which take on a, an, a, an autonomy that can influence us and run our lives without us knowing it. He called, the, he said they are daimones, he says, you know, he relates them exactly to these entities and says, you know, that, that we ignore them at our peril. Um, that these, these, so you can regard them in a psychological way or traditionally as just the inhabitants or the hidden, partly hidden inhabitants of the landscape around us. Mm. So if, when you say there that people have to be careful not to ignore them, is there a good example of that? Um, from your own research, from from your own understanding of of this subject, um, well, Freud's maxim that whatever is repressed returns in another guise is really a daimonic maxim. You know that if we if we, for instance, banish the daimons from nature, or rather, don't recognise them. Um, nature becomes soulless and dead and the daimons have to change shape and have to have to take refuge elsewhere and it was Jung's idea and I think he was right that where they took refuge was as it were inside us that our psyches you know it's it's a modern eccentric idea to confine psychic life solely within us individual humans. The traditional conception is that Plotinus's idea is, is that everything is soul and we are just individual manifestations of the general realm of soul which produces all the images in the universe, that soul is the substrate of the, of the universe. So if you deny soul and its diamonds to the outside world, to the natural world, they hide inside us and uh, and they become um, complexes in the unconscious, which then burst out on the psychoanalyst's couch, you know, having been neglected for 200 years. Psychology rediscovered them, you know, because they were driving a lot of people mad, you know, that they were uncontrollable, separate personalities speaking through us. I would argue too that that if you banish them for nature, I mean, I, I I'm inclined to think that when materialism stopped regarding nature as an ensouled realm, that the diamonds um, began to reappear in the very realms that they'd been banished from. They're completely subversive, and that's to say, in the spirits of the seance. I don't think we can, I, we can't now imagine how widespread the, the craze for seances was spreading from America in the 1850s, I think, 18, late 1840s, and swept across Europe. You know, everybody did table turning. And yet, it wasn't really a very spiritual activity. You know, the diamonds manifested in an incredible literal way, you know, imprinting their faces on wax and throwing things around and a ports would fly through the wall and um you know it could be argued that that was the return of the daimonic having been neglected in nature 
so that's where you know that's where they've been they've been inside us and and they've been in the drawing rooms of the victorians and i and subsequent to that um i i think the whole realm of the subatomic particles are probably diamonds if you draw up a list of the characteristics of an electron it's almost identical to that of the of the diamonds you know ambiguous contradictory fast moving elusive marginal shape changing it's all there in the subatomic realm which i believe is as much an imaginative place as a literal place just as the diamonds are i know that's a lot to swallow rick but no it's um you did ask where i (laughs) where i think they've gone you know that you, they're immortal, so you can't get rid of them. You know, you have to acknowledge them, and preferably acknowledge them in the in the form that they like to present themselves in best, which is to say, in personified form. That's how the imagination works. The 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 deep romantic imagination, it doesn't like doesn't like particles. You know, William Blake says there's no such things as atoms, and I know, and he didn't mean that they don't exist. He just meant there's no such they're not literal things you know and that really our imaginations are built to to recognize the diamonds in personified form not as humans but as persons right yeah no that was a a really good answer by the way (laughs) Uh, so you were talking there about materialism and and the advance of that in 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 the modern era i suppose and is it mostly in the West where you feel that daimonic entities have been ignored? I mean, I'm I'm imagining there are other there must be there are plenty of other cultures where that's not so much the case. Yeah, I, I that that's in all um I I mean in all animistic societies, um, of which there are still many, although we you know we we wipe them out as fast as we can, but they still exist. Um, diamonds are just a fact of life they're not supernatural, they're entirely natural um, but you can encounter them all the time in certain places at certain times just as we used to in, in not so long ago you know, even even up to the 17th century well I say even up to the 17th century, I, I mean we still do I mean there's plenty of people who see fairies and UFOs and God knows what all, I would put Bigfoot in that category Bigfoot seems to me to have all the characteristics of a of a big fairy, if you'll pardon the expression. So yes, they're they're still around and in their original personified form in our culture as well as in in tribal cultures, which merely take them for granted as being continuous with us and as having to be both avoided, but also importuned for you know for favors and and gifts and wisdom and so on. So. Um, you know, it's just that our culture, if they get, if they hear any accounts, or even anthropologists who are supposed to participate in the lives of their tribes, can't bring themselves to believe in the reality of diamonds, you know, and, and just sort of make a sigh and, you know, doggedly write down what the natives say, but they don't really believe it. But, but even then, you know, they're often confounded the number of anthropologists who've been shocked by seeing glowing balls of light fly through the air, which their tribe claims are witches, you know, and then they see them themselves. 
Well, usually they shut about shut up about that in their academic papers. But if you read their letters or when they've retired and they're safe, you know, they often admit to it. Mm, yes. So you're talking there about animism, and I was I was going to ask you about that actually because that does seem like a like a, a worldview, a belief system that fits well with daimonic reality. Um, what is it that would connect a particular daimon with a with a particular environment, so like a, a tree or a or a river or a rock? Is there that relationship, or is it is is that relationship understood from the human side of the veil or whatever exists, sort of between our world and the daimonic one? Um, yeah. Well, how can I put this? Um, you could say that the diamonds are where they are attached to nature. You know, they are like personifications of the natural object. Or you could say that a dryad, for instance, as the Greeks recognised, would would be the inside of the tree. You know, that the tree and the the dryad are one thing, but they're the inside and outside of the same thing. So, you know, trees have this personified aspect, as do almost all natural objects. Um, An animist society would probably say that all natural objects are like this, but some are more pronounced. There are always special trees, special wells which are holy, you know, special rocks which are sacred, and those are more likely to be daimon-ridden than other places. But by and large, you know, um, they're everywhere, you know. The Greeks and the Romans just thought that that ev- everywhere was was full of was was full of daimones, you know, including our households. The lares and penates of Roman culture meant that they inhabited our pantries and so on. And and that's actually a belief that that was current in in medieval England, for example, because in the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer. Um, in in the wife of Bath's tale, he de- he makes the wife of Bath describe how, in her lifetime, hosts of monks and friars were sent out from the great monasteries and so on in order to exorcise, the, to exorcise the pantries and the halls and the groves and the rocks and the woods, you know to make it that there been no fairies, as he says in Middle English, you know. And um, that's a little commented on commented on, on aspect of, of our history, that the, the church set its face against set its face against the fairies and tried to exorcise them. Or else, more sensibly, it it it, it often compromised by Christianizing them. So the nymph of a holy well would would become the Virgin Mary and so on, as is the case all over Ireland. So, um, yeah, I've lost my thread here. Rick, what was your question? Oh, I, th- I think it was um, mostly just to do with the relationship between, well, we're talking about animism and how, how that seems to be sort of a belief system that's, that fits well with, with a daimonic reality. Yes, yes, that... that, that the cultures we call animistic, you know, it's a hideous way of describing them. It's a rather pejorative way, too. It turns them into an ism, as if it were as a sort of 
philosophical belief. But to those societies, of course, there's no such thing as animism. There is just the world presenting itself to them as diamond-ridden in the first place. You know, it's a matter of, of simple perception. And, you know, the diamonds are continuous. And, and where they don't have, where they don't have specific entities, um, the diamonds can be played, the, dim, the, the diamond, the diamonic part, as it were, can be played by animals. All animistic societies believe that animals have societies analogous to our own, with their own villages and hierarchies and marriages and so on. Um, uh, that's a that's a, a lovely idea, and I'm sure that we had that too, given the sort of folkloric names of for creatures like Jenny Wren and Brock the Badger and so on. I think we recognise them, and if they're not animals, um, they're the ancestors. You know that they can take just human form as ancestral people. So those are the three ways in which the diamonds can present themselves as animals as uh, ancestral beings or as entities in their own right, which are the, obviously the ones that I'm most interested in because they're the ones that that plague us in these UFO-ridden times, you know, aliens and all that. Mm. It's interesting you were talking there about household spirits and domestic spirits. I imagine that a lot of people listening to this episode will have had instances in the home where things have just randomly disappeared and it happens to me not often but enough that I notice it do you think that in the past when in cultures that had a mindset that was more open to the the ideas that we're talking about they they would see they would see these creatures they would have sort of the the faculty of a not that the romantic imagination is a faculty because you as you describe it it's not but do you think that people in past cultures had the ability to understand the romantic imagination more than we do now? I think they just were more embedded in imagination, which hadn't been hived off into this sort of... See, imagination's not inimical to reason. You know, sweet reason and imagination work perfectly well together. It's this hyper-reason, this, this extreme rationalism that's kind of broken away from imagination and kind of demonised it and made it the province of, you know, children and hysterical women, as they did in the 18th century. You know, it's the, it's the sort of hyper-enlightenment rationalism. That, that, but, but even then, that, that can't break, break completely with imagination. It can, it can deny imagination any worth or, or any truth. But um, it is itself a way of imagining, even though it's a very narrow one. The, your your mention of the um, your mention of things disappearing is is funny because yeah I wrote an essay about that actually, which is on my website, um, which I sent to forty and times and got tremendous post bag full of people describing how things mysteriously disappear. My mother was particularly was particularly plagued by this. You know, it was always plane tickets or ferry tickets which would disappear from the top of her suitcase. You know, and oh. And keys, for instance, these are kind of, it's interesting that it's things like keys and tickets that disappear because they are sort of symbols of um, transition, aren't they? Symbols of, of, of moving from one place to another. 
and um, she called it pixelation. I don't know why she called it that, but it's as good as work, good a word for for any, uh, actually. And, and she played a trick on me after she died, actually. Shall I tell you the story? Oh, yes, please do. It's quite funny. It's quite funny because she was always pixelated and, and it was ridiculous. And one of the things that annoyed her very much was I was living with her at the time and I used to smoke in her car and the ashtray was full and she kept badgering me to empty the ashtray. So I pulled it out, emptied it, and then I left it on the sideboard in the kitchen. And then I was flicking ash onto the floor cause there was, of the car because there was no ashtray. So she said, um, for God's sake, put the ashtray back. So I said I would. But it had gone, it had disappeared from the sideboard. And we searched the house, you know, for that ashtray. And we couldn't find it, you know. My mother, and normally when she can't find something, she she invokes the pixies out loud. She says, you know, right, you've had your fun, you know, can I have it back now? And sure enough, the object will usually reappear within about, you know, within the day, say, you know, the thing that, that's disappeared. But this time it didn't. It didn't. It had completely disappeared. Um, shortly after that, she died very suddenly. She had a aneurysm, a drop dead, and things like that. And three days after her death, I, I got into the car to to dr drive somewhere, and the ashtray was back in the car. And I had to laugh. I thought this is absolutely brilliant. This is my mother, it now colluding with the very pixies she fought with all her life. To replace this ashtray, I knew, knew perfectly well that it was a, a message from her to make me laugh. You know, so that's an, a, an instance where the, the diamonds and the dead overlap, which they often do. You know, the dead are often seen amongst the fairies, and in Brittany, the dead have completely re replaced um, the fairies. You know, the dead have all the, the old Brittany that is, they have all the attributes of the that the fairies have so yeah things disappearing yeah that's a demonic uh, a demonic thing i think mm. thank you for telling that story that's wonderful well it's it's an it's an amusing story it made me laugh anyway because i thought oh you know what if my mother wanted to give me a sign you know a cheery wave from from the afterlife that was the really rather witty way of doing it you know yeah absolutely so Continue on from, from that area of, of paranormal phenomenon. And what is the relationship between ghosts and, and demons? The, the first section of, of the book is, is called Apparitions, and it covers a, a broad range of paranormal phenomenon. Yes. Um, I think I don't talk about ghosts, and I do that deliberately because they're, uh, you know, they're sort of, um, I don't know what to make of ghosts, really. Um, Clearly, they're sometimes actual spirits of the dead. You know, people wake in the night, don't they? And there's their grandmother standing at the end of their bed. This is a very common thing, smiling at them. And they, in the morning, they phone up, and sure enough, she's died at exactly that time. So that's fair enough. Um, but then there are ghosts which seem to haunt places at, at regular intervals. And they seem to be more sort of, automatic perhaps you know rather like an imprint left that folklore has it that you know if you die violently or you know suddenly or you know under 
unforeseen circumstances, you leave a kind of imprint, which is not you, but which is um, you know, an image of yourself, which, which continues to appear. And then there, there's the class of ghost, the sort of the white lady class of ghost, and I, and I, and, and that I don't know quite what that is either, except that that might be kind, of, that might be a sort of spirit of the place in some way. So I'm sure there are di different kinds of ghosts. I mean, poltergeists, for instance. I mean, you see, there, there's another possible overlap with with fairy lore because the, you know, the fairies famously. If you don't keep your house in in proper order in Ireland, the fairies will come and rough it up. You know, they'll throw things around and um, break your plates. So, I never really went into a, a classification of ghosts, if such a thing is indeed possible or indeed desirable. So I don't quite know what to say about them, Ray. What's your take on ghosts? I would agree with you. I, I think there's more than one answer to what they are. Some of them are. A lot of the time they seem connected to the person that sees them and other times that there seems to be no real connection it seems to be a you know a random a random circumstance but more often than not the experience will have meaning to the person it will it will change them somehow or the, the event seems to have a value it's uh, so why i generally think is that when it comes to interacting with ghosts whatever they may be um we the the living are a sort of a, a key component of that but i'm not sure what that relationship is and why why ghosts appear where they do and and look like they do if it's not someone that you recognize yes exactly it, it's difficult well they they just seem to be more attached to the place than to you hmm. whereas other ghosts are clearly attached to you you know they're people you recognize or you know ancestors or or relatives who have died um, and yeah why ghosts attach themselves to there's a very interesting essay by wb yates on this subject which i think show, throws a lot of light on it but unfortunately i can't remember quite exactly what he says so i won't go into it here but um yeah i don't know and yeah what what more to be said um i i remember reading an, an account by an old an old Oxford Don, who was a who was quite an ardent rationalist, and he was always arguing with C.S. Lewis, you know who I mean, the Narnia man, about you know Christianity and the afterlife and things like that. And shortly after C.S. Lewis died, he appeared in this Don's study, you know, completely solid and real, and smoking his pipe, and the the Don could could see him. He didn't speak. He just smiled at him. And Don could see him for about three minutes and even smell pipe smoke. I mean, so there's that, there's that kind of daimonic aspect to ghosts that, you know, it, 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 sometimes they seem to appear as absolutely solid people, you know, absolutely material. And yet they're not. They're dead. So there we have it. Your guess yeah. is as good as mine. <laughs> and something else that's uh, included in that first section of the book are cryptids i mean you mentioned bigfoot earlier there um yeah i love a bigfoot yeah oh absolutely the same here with other cryptids do you i mean i'm intrigued as to whether lake monsters uh, there might be some sort of demonic entity of 
especially and as we were just talking about animism some something that's connected to to the, to a lake or a body of water is that something that you think could be possible yeah i think i think they're a bit like sort of the dryad and the tree you know the lake monster seems to be a um, not personified form but an animate form of of the lake it's amazing how often people say oh i thought it was a log or an overturned boat you know they often use the same imagery that their eyes tell them it's a sort of a literal thing and then suddenly it rears up and it's got a sort of horse-like shaggy head you know uh, and that relates too to the um what are they called the scottish loch creatures um silkies are they are they silkies what are they called i've forgotten oh uh, kelpies 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 that's right water horses you know that there are there are sort of smaller version of of the of the ground lake monsters like Nessie and Ogapogo and 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 all those. Uh, yeah, I remember reading at the time. Unfortunately, you know, when I wrote that book, there was no internet. I had to do everything the hard way. You know, taking notes from books in libraries. And uh, but now, thank God, there are wonderful websites like Sasquatch Chronicles in which you can hear the witnesses talking at great length about these things you know we no longer have need for for um you know book research and so yeah i i think that lake monsters are kind of like the but why they should appear as these monsters i don't know why why do you know sasquatch and bigfoot appear in these tend to appear in these mountainous forested areas it's like they're the spirits of the place too the gdi loki as the romans call them so so yeah they they seem to be connected to a landscape you know mm, absolutely and why is it you think that some uh, demonic entities might sort of change their form over time like we were talking about the ufo phenomena being similar to fairy phenomena from times past and but but some demons seem to stick to sort of i guess their classic look uh, if for want of a better word yes well yes ex- except you could argue that you know that um that the fairies have died out from england a lot you know that every county in england had its own name for fairies in the old days from the the Pharisees and Pharaohs of Norfolk to the Derricks of Dorset to the Pixies of Cornwall to the Hobbs and Boggarts of Lancashire and so on and so on. You might say that they've sort of died out a bit. Um, the Irish are always claiming that the that the fairies have died out, uh, you know, always. Um, they always say, no, oh, the old people used to believe that, but they don't believe that any, anymore and so on. But it's very interesting that if you read... 16th century accounts they're saying exactly the same thing and if you read monkish accounts in the 11th century from ireland they say oh the you know the fairies have died out you know um the thing is that the fairies are always dying out but they never die out you know (laughs) they're always going going but never gone just as ufos are always coming coming but never here you know there's a nice symmetry there i think so yeah uh, i i suppose that that yes you can you, the, you can encounter diamonds in their in their original forms perhaps it's a matter of your personal temperament you know 
So I think, yes, they do shape, change shape over history, but they also persist in their, their original forms, and why not? Why, I don't know, Rick. You know, it's a very good question, but unfortunately, um, in matters daimonic, you know, which science pr treats as a problem to be solved, um, it's not that, not that at all. It's a mystery that you enter into, and it's you who are changed by investigating the mystery. You know, you have to change your worldview it's no good trying to get them to conform to, you know, a modern materialist rational worldview. They, they can't be solved as a problem. You know, they are the great mystery. That's what I like about them, you know. And you, you start off investing a little UFO problem. And the next thing, you're sucked into the depths, you know. I mean, you think it's going to be easy. You think you're going to crack this in a week. But, you know, if it's a really good UFO sighting or landing or alien business um it leads you into you know philosophical depths about the nature of reality itself you know and it leads you back to not just the romantic imagination but to the greek soul of the world which is where the daimons live you know and um and you're you're mindful of what socrates says that the, the daimons convey the wishes of the wishes of men to the gods and the will of gods to the men or to men you know that they are absolutely mediating prin principles that he who breaks the breaks the chain of daimons loses the gods or something as Salus said you know so we absolutely must pay attention to them in whatever form they appear yeah i i agree is it a case that in a materialistic society such as seems to predominate in the western world for the most part is it is it making it harder for these entities to appear to be seen or to exist concurrently with with our world i suppose i think i've answered that i think that whatever repressed whatever is repressed returns in another guise and i think you you do away with the diamonds, they come back in another form. They come back as madness, neurosis. They come back as, as um, you know, the subatomic realm. They even come back as the astronomical realm. You know, I, I don't believe that our, our vision of the, con of the cosmos is fixed and literal. Um, you know, I believe with the Platonists that, you know, that it's an imaginative construct, that everything is soul. And therefore, if everything is soul, everything is shape-shifting, and everything is an image, and we take these images literally, but 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 in fact we shouldn't. You know that the universe is primarily metaphorical, and so you know we we project you know that the universe at large, the the macrocosm at large, is a reflection of our own souls as microcosms you know that we are little souls within the greater soul and that if we um, don't believe in soul anymore um the universe will reflect that it will it will it will be a mirror to our own lack of soul our own lack of depth our emptiness and come back as a black hostile empty universe full of dark matter which is a marvelous metaphor for jung's shadow you know the shadow mm. part of our psyches which is the unacknowledged unknown part you know 
Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm aware that this is an absolutely crack, crackpot point of view, you know, that nobody doubts that the reality of our, of our, the literal reality of our universe. But I do, you know, I, I think we've lived in other kinds of cosmoses before and probably will live in different kinds of cosmoses again, you know. Yeah, I, I think that's a perfectly reasonable approach to understanding the universe. Well, I talk about reasonable, Rick, but... <laughs> <laughs> I know, maybe. But, but, what I wanted to ask was um, uh, a, a creature that exists in most cultures uh, are dragons. And, you know, I'm a big fan of dragons. And, I mean, if you read some of the stories about them, they it feels like that they were real in a way. And I'm I'm just wondering if when people saw them or had accounts of them, that culture had a, it was easier for sort of diamonic entities to appear in, in that culture, in that world, because they were more embedded in, in the imagination as you described it earlier. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that, that dragons are, are of the race of diamonds themselves. Um, the trouble, they are a specialist subject though. Um, mm. I thought of making a, a, a study of them at one point. I just didn't get around to it. You know, the, the difference between tri Chinese dragons and Norse dragons. And dragons appear in alchemy, which, are, you know, when I was studying it. And, and in, in alchemy, they, they're, they're kind of like a union of the four elements. They're sort of earth, air, fire and water. You know, they're watery. They could be watery creatures, but they breathe fire, yet they fly through the air yet they're grounded on the earth, you know. So you could see them as, 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 sim as symbols, you know, as well as living entities. But um, the short answer is I just don't know enough about dragons. I've got some books and I never got round to, to reading them. I think it's a bit like um, you've got to draw the line somewhere. But, you know, a good book on dragons would be most interesting. And... Um, I dare say I own one, but I just haven't read it yet. Hmm. I'm just intrigued as to whether if they come back, they'll come back as in a different form. The the powerful demonic entity will will reappear, but not as the giant flying reptile. Yes, yes, indeed. I wonder. I wonder if um. I wonder if they will. Maybe atomic bombs are dragons. Something like that. Who knows? Yeah, no, that's a. <laughs> Who knows? Or... I prefer I prefer their classic form, but yeah, that would be a. Well, yes, indeed, <laughs> yes. Or maybe maybe we've literalized dragons into into military equipment or something, you know. But that's the trouble. We we literalize everything, you know, that all the shamans' powers are now literalized. You know, their powers of of doing harm at a distance are literalized by bullets and their powers of looking into the human body and extracting things is literalized by our x-rays and surgery and you know and even the other world itself is literalized by television in which little people images cavort about you know that technology literalizes the old shamanic powers of magic you know even shamanic flight we've literalized you know we're mad to fly and we finally invented the aeroplane you know um but 
you know, it, it, there, there's a certain danger about literalizing the other world into this, into making it part of this world, you know, that we, we think we can control the daimonic powers, but really they control us. And we have to be very careful that we're not similarly controlled by our own, our own technology, which seems more and more likely if the AI programs are anything to go by. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean there. Um, on that subject, um, do you think uh, demonic entities could use our our media uh, and to appear to to take form? I'm I'm thinking of examples where authors and have met the characters that they've created. Famously, Alan Moore said he met John Constantine in a in a shop. Um, and other other authors have reported similar instances of meeting a character that they created. Um, I don't know that many instances of it, but you know, but but you could equally say that it was precognitive that m- m- maybe they imaginatively created characters that already existed, or do you think they were, or, or are they too closely replicated to be? You know, the, the character came first before the encounter. I think I'm I'm just intrigued as to what imagination was sort of manifesting itself. Um, if the romantic imagination is almost like a, another realm when when people create stories and comic books and TV programs, are they tapping into somehow into the into the romantic imagination? So potentially the denizens of that realm when they tell a story. Yes, they are because because there aren't that many stories. I mean, famously, you know that there are infinite number of variations on myths, but we know that the basic themes of myths are, as Ted Hughes said, as alike on the as the lines on the palm of a hand. The motifs of of separate mythologies are, in fact, quite limited. You know, like the hero's quest, the journey to the other world. Um, we, we we tell those same stories over and over again. You know, practically every thriller is a journey to the other world, whether it's a journey to the underworld of crime, say, or the the other world of d- disease and medicine. You know, endless soap operas on that theme, or whether it's just the other world of a different class, for instance. You know, but but all the all the um, motifs of modern fiction and indeed television programs you know are reenacting in admittedly a rather pale and etiolated way you know the old the old myths and we never tire of hearing about them um, the myth of eros and psyche which is you know a foundational myth about the nature of love and the soul are reenacted in every single you know, uh, romantic fiction you can think of. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl again, you know. That's an ancient myth um, which we never tire of hearing about. So, yes, whether actual... uh, There's no reason why, you know, you can't sort of conjure up, you know, that, that... there's a strong, you know, all imaginative activity is a kind of magic. Um, actually, so when you consider the great 
Renaissance magi like Marsilio Ficino, in which he thought imagination was the the ground of the universe, and he and and his idea was to you know perform magic that you set up on Earth um, if you want to draw down the power, the solar powers, for instance, or or indeed the, the solar da- daemon, you you just perform the right rituals. You create circumstances, a room full of gold, which is resonates with the sun, and with music that is sun-like, and with, you know, various herbs which are connected to the sun. You know, they lived in a world of sympathy and correspondences, of analogies, which we've done away with, you know. And if you create the right conditions, the the power, the imaginative power of the sun will automatically be drawn down, as it were, and manifest itself. So, um, you know, the the idea of art and magic were very closely allied in 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 the Renaissance, and we've retained the art, but done away with the magic, or think we have. But as you say, you know. There is magic in all in all deep imaginative thinking, and maybe it can conjure or conjure the demons to appear, as Alan Moore did. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So we're almost out of time. Before we end, I just want to ask: It's been a little while since you wrote Dimonic Reality. Years and years. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to add to it if if you had the chance? Um, you were talking earlier about when you wrote it, the you didn't have the, the there wasn't the internet to assist you. Is there is there anything that you think you'd want to add or is there, it? There probably is, Rick. Yeah, there probably is. You know, some of the details are either not fleshed out enough, or I don't think there are major inaccuracies. I mean, the the broad outlines of it I think still hold good you know uh, hmm. I must say I haven't read it recently but in a way uh, I, I'm relieved that I wrote it when I did because I'd just be on the internet I'd just be utterly overwhelmed by examples of all the things I touch on I mean, I th- it's almost impossible now to, to write a book like that which attempts to draw together so many different kinds of things you know cryptozoology ufology, folklore, imagination, um, mm. William Blake's poetry, Neoplatonic <laughs> philosophy, romantic imagination, you know. I, I, I try and draw that all together into a big picture which doesn't explain you know, anomalous events, but I think makes them more intelligible at least, you know. People, people see, can see them in a, in a larger context. But now I'd just be so swamped with examples of things, you know. I mean, I I had about 600 anomalous events that I wanted to put in my book, and I had to cut it down to about 150, you know. And the and the and the situation's even worse now because, um, you know, you can get you can get so many first-hand accounts of anomalies uh, off the internet that that you'd be utterly swamped, and you end up writing much more specialist books, whereas mine was an attempt at kind of a, a big picture book, you know, a kind of a world view which which made sense of these things, even if it didn't solve their problem. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I really enjoyed reading it, and I think it's a, 
very important book and something that anyone interested in the 49ers should should have in their bookcase <laughs> well yes and, and my subsequent books are are sort of further accounts of, of that same quest really you know hmm. you know my a book about the imagination is one and then another book about the soul you know follows and indeed my whole alchemical treatise mercurius the marriage of heaven heaven and earth is about that different way of seeing the world, you know, because alchemy is perhaps the supreme example of, of of that imaginative, analogistic way of looking at things. And indeed, my, one of my other favourite metaphors for the other world and the imagination is Mercurius himself, who's both the principle of alchemy and the beginning of alchemy and the end of alchemy, the marvellous philosopher's stone itself, that he is the the spirit which undergoes transformations uh, in order to produce the the resurrected marvel that is the stone of the philosophers. But that's for another time, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Patrick, this has been a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. It's nice to talk to you, Rick. Yeah, sorry if I've banged on too much. No, not at all. If people want to find out more about you and your writing, how best do they do that? Oh, pray. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I'd say say try my website, which is um, www.harper.org slash Patrick. But actually, if if you Google Patrick Harper... I think my website's pretty near the top of the page, yeah. Excellent. Well, I'll put that information in the show notes. All right, Rick. Thank you, and um, bye-bye. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Patrick. If you don't have a copy of Daimonic Reality yet, or any of his other books for that matter, I heartily recommend getting hold of them, if you can as you won't be disappointed. You can also visit his website to find more of his writing there, such as that which he mentioned during the interview. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media, as it really helps some other sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow some other sphere on Twitter and Mastodon, and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.